welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gabby Baker-Whitelaw, and here is my co-host, Morgan Davies. Hello. So uh, we're back after quite a long break due to Morgan having COVID, possibly long COVID. I don't know what the cutoff is, but my poor co-host has been ailing. But we are back with some film festival reviews. And unsurprisingly, it's fewer films than usual because of the difficulty of attending a film festival when you're in bed, Morgan. (laughs) Yes, I caught what certainly does appear to be long COVID, although I don't think I've quite reached the cutoff point yet. I think it's two months literally one week, less than a week, actually, before the beginning of the press screenings for the New York Film Festival, which is always the highlight of my year. Like, I love going to NIF so much, and unfortunately, was not able to for obvious reasons. And it's very hard to get screener links for anything from that. So I wouldn't have been able to see much of anything at home anyway. But also, the doctor told me to not look at screens. So... I have not really been watching anything, which obviously listeners of this podcast will know uh, is torment for me, because what I like to do is watch movies. So I've been reading a lot of books, but not watching a lot of movies. I did get one link to a screener of a sensational movie from a friend of mine who is publicist, which I will talk about later. But this is going to be a very Gavia heavy episode, because (laughs) Gavia was actually able to see a few things from like LFF at Glasgow, again, traveling to London (laughs) during a pandemic when you don't like have to, Yeah, less than ideal. I mean, I would love to go back to London Film Festival. Um, There's a lot of discourse over programming now because the program has got kind of slightly smaller each year for the past few years. And then the films that kind of get shown remotely are always the most mainstream ones. And I love to watch weird experimental foreign movies that I otherwise don't have access to. So that is a bit of a bummer, but um, I did see some really interesting films and I'm going to talk about four today and Morgan will talk about one. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) What can you do? Indeed. So I'm going to begin with Triangle of Sadness, which Morgan is almost guaranteed to love because she is a big fan of the director Ruben Ostlund who is a Swedish filmmaker who previously made Force Majeure and The Square. I have seen The Square. It is a very funny, satirical movie about the art world in the Netherlands and has Clay's bang in it. We actually mentioned this in a relatively recent episode because I'd found out that the guy who does a weird monkey impression in it is actually a professional monkey impressionist, which came (laughs) up in, I don't remember which episode, maybe the King Arthur one, but that is a fascinating detail for the square. But um, this movie, Triangle of Sadness, it won the Palme d'Or at Cannes this year, obviously a lot of acclaim, but it is also very divisive for reasons which I do find understandable because it is a very long comedy. Comedies are not usually very long and it's also quite perverse and it has what I would characterise as a very Scandinavian sense of humour. So very dark humour, but also kind of verging into slapstick. And it's a political satire as well. It's set primarily on a luxury cruise ship and it has an ensemble cast, although the main characters are a pair of models slash Instagram influencers played by Harris Dickinson and Charlby Dean, who sadly passed away this year shortly after the film premiered. And... These two are just like this terrible, toxic couple. Like the guy is this weak ass, pathetic dude who's really passive aggressive. And she's this self-absorbed monster who just loves money. And 
they, through their influencer powers, get free tickets onto this ship full of terrible people who could all easily be members of the cast of Succession. Um, There's a fun but minor (laughs) role for Woody Harrelson, who's playing a kind of stereotypical sea captain drunk role, which is very much in his wheelhouse, but it's a really fun international cast. The breakout star is probably Dolly De Leon, who is a middle-aged Filipina actress who has had like a long career in stuff like soaps, but this is her first really big kind of international drama film that reached festivals, so that kind of has got her representation from a major agent and stuff and she plays one of the below deck staff on the ship and it's a comedy that is sort of based around the social awkwardness of the power dynamics and cultural clashes between these super rich people who feel like they can demand everything and are never happy and then the people who work from them and also it's on this setting of a ship where like you're supposed to be having a great time but of course you're not because like cruise ships are not that great you know which is kind of part of the joke of this is like what the fuck do you do in a cruise ship there's nothing to do and I don't want to go too much into spoilers I feel like the trailer for this film spoils far too much of what happens so if possible don't watch the trailer but I will warn you that if you have a phobia of vomiting don't watch this movie. Absolutely do not watch. There's a lot of vomiting in this movie. I have like just a normal response to vomiting, which is that's disgusting. But even I was like covering my eyes. (laughs) But it's hilarious. It's just a really fantastic ensemble cast. And it really kind of makes you think about the cinematic techniques behind comedy, right? Because the vast majority of comedies that we watch are mainstream broad comedies. You know, there's not actually that many comedies that are in the sort of more serious artistic sphere and like just right from the beginning of watching the film you could just tell how accomplished Ruben Ostland is a director like there was this scene that really jumped out to me right in the first section where before they've gotten to the ship there's a long sequence where this young model couple are having this completely stupid petty argument over paying a restaurant bill and it goes on for like 10 to 15 minutes it's like practically a one-act play about paying the restaurant bill and part of it takes place in a car and the way the camera works is it's kind of like if the camera was attached to one of those claw machines in an arcade where it's just kind of like (laughs) swinging between them like it's watching a contentious match and it's really nauseous and it's also like you're kind of watching two people and turning from side to side and it just makes it so much funnier and then that becomes like a much grander scale once you're on a boat that's like you know moving around in the sea and stuff so there's just a lot going on here all of the actors get to give really distinctive fun performances and um It's simultaneously extremely fucked up while being very, very in your face with extremely obvious political messages. (laughs) Yeah, I, as you said, when you started talking about this, I can't wait to watch this movie because I really love Ostlund's previous work. And part of what I found really interesting about, I mean, I haven't read reviews because I try not to read reviews of stuff before I've seen the movie, but obviously people have been talking about this since Cannes. But Force Majeure, which came out, I think, eight years ago, like it's been a while, is the most visually controlled movie you can imagine in a way that feels very kind of like late 20th, early 21st century, like classical European cinema in the sense that I don't think there's a score. There are a lot of like long, like held shots on people and scenes and you kind of just watch things play out within them. And um The camera, I don't think, moves very much at all in that movie. And every shot is obviously very intentional, but it is supposed to feel just like very claustrophobic 
in a way where the form of the movie is just very sort of like precise and then chaos is happening within it but in a pretty small scale way like it's a family on vacation and things go wrong and there's like one kind of outsized thing that happens at the beginning but everything else that follows that is kind of how you would expect people to react to this event like there's an avalanche at the beginning of the movie and the dad just like takes off instead of trying to protect his family um and then they have to kind of deal with this and then in the next two movies he's made he's gone sort of way in the opposite direction of doing these big messy movies where he's exploring some similar themes in i mean he's of, definitely like, interested in like emasculation <laughs> absolutely and just like embarrassing behavior shame and also sort of like privileged people whether they just be kind of bourgeois or super rich in this case and the sort of stupidity of of their problems and concerns but obviously he's doing something really stylistically different in the square and this like the square just has so much going on I don't think that movie always works because it's so messy, but part of what I like about it is that he's willing to just be like, what if I just tried this other thing now? And part of that is the comedy, which, as you say, often you don't see in a movie by, like, a really serious filmmaker who has serious And also, while I'm talking about, like, oh, yes, it's really artistically accomplished, I watched this in a theatre and people were, like, roaring with laughter all the way through. It's not like, oh, it's a comedy, but it's a drama. It is a comedy and it is absolutely hilarious. Yeah. I also just find him really interesting. I don't know very much about him as a person, but um, I remember listening to an interview with him that he'd done, I think, at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, where the New York Film Festival takes place after The Square was there. And he just, like, outlined the entire plot of Triangle of Sadness. This was, like, years ago. It's, like, five years ago. And I obviously don't remember the details at all anymore, but it was definitely, like, rich people having drama on a yeah. cruise ship. Most artists are like, I don't want to talk about what I'm doing next for very understandable reasons. And he was just like, no, let me tell the whole audience, like, everything that I'm going to do in my next movie. And he just seemed so kind of, like, cheerful about it and, like, excited to talk about what he was doing next in a way that felt very, like, angst-free and also, like, he was just genuinely having a great time doing what he was doing, which I find quite nice. It like, is nice, especially considering know? how dark and, and horrible these films are. Just, like, every... <laughs> it, the thing is, right, each character is extremely pinpointed, which kind of balances out the fact that all of the political commentary is just, like, so hilariously blunt and obvious. But they're all so repellent that it's kind of the challenge of the film is to make you sympathise with them at all. And for me, that worked, but I think for other people it didn't work. Yeah, but just as a final note, do you know about his zoom technique? No. So he films everything in big wide angle shots and then just digitally zooms into when he wants close ups. Oh my god! <laughs> I look. <laughs> I respect any artist. I mean, who's it's just so like, weird. I, have I love a it. Crazy approach, and I'm just gonna go with it. Like, I mean, I obviously didn't pick you. up on this visually. Like, I don't know if it's possible to pick up on that visually, but apparently that is what he does in the vast majority of shots. <laughs> Madness. Well, yeah, that is out in the US right now. I think yeah, pretty wide, it's out. So. It's out, yeah. And it's out in the UK. It will be out in the UK by the time this episode airs. Yeah, so if people want to see that and they don't have COVID and are stuck at home in their apartments, you can go do that. Sounds like a great time. Why don't you take us into the next movie that you saw at the festival? So I saw Nanny, 
which won the big Sundance Film Prize this year. So this is another like huge award winner of 2022. It's going to be coming out in November in theatres and then it's going to be coming out on Amazon Prime in December. It's a horror movie, which is the feature film debut of an American director named Nikiatu Jusu, but she has made various shorts that I've not seen and she's also a film studies professor, very much like an accomplished filmmaker already. And it stars Anna Diop in the lead role as an undocumented Senegalese woman who has got like a new job as a nanny for this rich couple in New York who are played by Michelle Monaghan and Morgan Spector. And she's looking after their five-year-old daughter and they've hired her because they're always at work. And also she speaks French and they want the kid to learn French. A lot of the kind of thematic stuff and like the concept here is very familiar. It's kind of a mixture between a lot of familiar themes for horror stories about a young woman who moves into a big scary house or someone who's trapped in a difficult position to do with class. But it also is structurally quite different from traditional horror movies in America, which I really appreciated because it's been picked up by Amazon Bloomhouse for distribution. And the vast majority of stuff that comes out through Bloomhouse, even though a lot of it is quite low budget, is very conventional and often quite corny and ridiculous. This movie is not corny. I didn't really like it as much as some people, but the thing that I really appreciate about that is that it kind of is a mixture between the sort of jump scare and spooky haunted house stuff and then elements of fantasy and just straightforward non-genre drama that you see a lot more in films that aren't from America. And it also kind of, it's drawing from Senegalese mythology and the first kind of hour of the film is a lot more just like watching a drama than watching a genre film. Mainly my big takeaway from this is I want to see this director's next film and I also think that Anna Diop is actually like absolutely incredible in the lead role but I do think that some of the the social commentary stuff is a bit too obvious. Morgan knows this and I'm sure I've mentioned it on other episodes but I'm really interested in stories that are about like servants and the kind of the relationships that people have with their employers especially if they're in a house living together. And there's a few other movies that I've watched recently that are kind of working in the same sphere as this, which are about usually women who are working in some kind of service position. So there's a really good movie called Dearest Sister. It's a Lao horror film and it's about this girl who gets employed by her much richer cousin. I mean, her cousin's blind and she becomes a carer. So it's this kind of folk horror slash haunted house story. Very good. Also, Good Manners, which I think we may have discussed in a previous episode, which is a werewolf film, which has similar racial dynamics because it's set in Brazil and it's about a black woman who is hired to be the live-in carer and nanny for a wealthy white woman who is pregnant and is about to have a baby. But with this film, although the drama parts worked really well for me and Anna Diop is just like an incredible incredibly magnetic screen presence. She's just amazing. There was a lot of just like quite obvious stuff in the internal dynamics between this rich white couple and their employee. And it also draws really heavily from this famous Senegalese film from the 1960s called Black Girl. Very acclaimed film. It's only an hour long and you can watch it on the Internet Archive and I would highly recommend it. In many regards, it's basically the same plot. I wouldn't say like, oh, she's copying it because it's like, it's an intentional homage in a different genre but that film I felt when you kind of compare the two it's so obvious that like one of them has far more kind of complex and morally nuanced characterization and it's also a lot meaner but yeah I mean I had issues with Nanny but in general really good film and I think it's probably going to be a hit so you know three and a half stars from me (laughs) 
Well, I definitely second your recommendation of Black Girl, which I saw years ago at a revival screening, so I don't remember all the details. I should watch it again, especially since it's so short, but I remember just being like mesmerized by it. It's so good. When you say that that film is kind of meaner than this one, or that some of the dynamics are a little obvious, do you mean this that there's a kind of like, the white people are just like really evil and the main character is more sympathetic or is there a different kind of I mean the white people are evil in both of these stories and also like the (laughs) and like the settings are very different because like black girl is set in 1960s France and it's this couple who have basically enslaved this woman who thinks she's coming there to be like an au pair and have a pretty decent job whereas in this situation it's kind of a slow burn thing where they introduce like Michelle Monaghan and you're like oh well she's this sort of like white liberal figure who's a bit controlling but like probably isn't that bad and of course you know she is going to be end up being like this horrible nightmare both of these people are kind of shit in a very realistic and plausible way um I did I did see recently when there was the scandal over how Jason Sudeikis and Olivia Wilde were treating their nanny there were these like leaked texts where truly every nanny needs to be paid like a billion dollars but like the director of this film was sharing these texts being like this is why I made this film and it's like yeah being a nanny to extremely rich people does seem like a complete nightmare especially when there's like the complicating factor of being an undocumented worker yeah but um it just felt like there was maybe some elements of this which felt like they'd been covered in a lot of other recent movies that are kind of to do with racism in America and you know similar subject matter not like a major criticism but I was just like trying too hard to be accessible in that regard while in other ways like it's far more experimental than you're used to seeing from mainstream horror movies I'm just sort of like curious to see how that's received basically Yeah, I'll be curious too and I'm obviously really curious to watch this. There was an interesting article in the New York Times a week or two ago, I'll link to it in the show notes, talking about black literature, not black film, critiquing various sort of recent acclaimed novels and then praising some other ones in terms of orienting versus not orienting the plot to sort of be reacting against whiteness or white characters or racism or whatever. And I think it's a really interesting thing to think about because obviously these are issues that aren't going anywhere, but especially with horror movies, since Get Out there obviously has been this huge trend toward like every horror movie has to be a parable about some immediate social issue in a very obvious way and race in particular has it's been a a thing that we've seen in a lot of horror movies and I think that obviously can be used in horror and other genre stuff to really interesting effect I mean Get Out's a great movie obviously but sometimes it does feel to me like you're sort of watching a movie and you're like, yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Get Out is just one of the best horror movies of the past 20 years. But then kind of the issue is that like when you're making genre films that are also kind of a political film, when you try and make any kind of story that's meant to be really smart, if it goes wrong, it's less good than making a movie that's yeah. trying to be stupid. Well, the movie I saw has some some sort of tangential connections to the one you're talking about I think just in terms of sort of political commentary and race femininity although a lot of that stuff is really sublimated in the movie in a way that I found really satisfying because it forces you to think about stuff sort of yourself without the movie spoon feeding you anything and this movie is called Saint-Omer it's a French film directed by Alice Diop, and the screenplay is by her and two other writers, Ambrita David and the novelist Marie Nadai. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, I apologize, which I actually hadn't realized until I looked this up before we started recording that that novelist 
was one of the screenwriters. And that's really interesting to me because I haven't read her work, but she's a very acclaimed Senegalese French novelist. So there's clearly like a, a sort of think tank of like really talented people involved in this movie. The cinematography was also by Claire Maton, who did Portugal Lady on Fire and other films, just like a brilliant, brilliant yeah, cinematographer. So this movie is the first fiction feature by the director, Alice Diop. She has previously been a documentarian. And the movie is a really interesting progression for her. I haven't seen her documentaries, though I'm very curious to watch them now because I thought this movie was incredible. It's not that it like mingles documentary techniques in any kind of explicit way, but the story is based on a real event that happened, not in a direct explicit way. It's not like there's a title card saying like this is based on true events, but the plot is basically about a court case of a Senegalese um, immigrant woman who has been living in France for quite some time who murdered her young daughter. And there was a similar case in the French court system that inspired this movie. And if you know some of this background, you kind of think about how her documentary work and her sort of sort of observation and close study of French society and just like people in general contributed to making this movie. And the way she shoots the movie has a lot of really long shots, again, of just like this woman speaking at her trial or of other people giving testimony or of the judge. And so even though it's not like cinema verite, it is sort of just letting you kind of, again, make your own conclusions about what's going on. So there's a frame story that sort of goes around the movie, which is that there's this black female writer, possibly like academic too, I think we, we don't get much of her life, but she's married, it becomes obvious pretty early in the movie that she is pregnant, and she's really fascinated by this woman's story and court case. And so she goes to the court and watches from the audience and is taking notes for a project that she's planning to write about this woman's court case. But the majority of the actual screen time is the trial. And so there's a lot of again, just kind of like monologues from the defendant who is played by an absolutely incredible actress named Guzlagi Malanja. Again, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing this stuff. Um, I didn't do the amount of prep that I normally would because I'm sick, but this movie's great. There is some discussion of race and her background and the fact that like her family really valued education and sent her to France to go to university. And so she speaks like perfect French and there's this kind of like awe that she speaks perfect French and was studying philosophy, uh, like European philosophy in a university. And one of her professors goes on the stand and is like, well, I thought she should study African writers because like, what does she have to say about Wittgenstein? But what's so incredible about the movie is that you can never quite tell what's really going on in this woman's head. Like she clearly feels incredible remorse about having murdered her young daughter, but we never truly understand what motivated her to do that. And it's not totally clear whether she is totally telling the truth or lying at certain points of her testimony. Um, she has a difficult relationship with her mother, who also appears in the film and gives testimony. And the movie basically asks us to think both about the justice system, um, 
the French justice system is insane. Like that I was is like, like this. The, I remember hearing something about that for the film, and I was oh like God. intriguing because I don't know anything about the French justice system. So and like I have to assume that this is an accurate representation given Alice Diop's background as a documentary filmmaker. Like I don't think she would just be making stuff up. But like <laughs> they basically have this woman standing there, and then it's like a panel of judges and a jury, and then the defense and prosecuting attorneys and. The judge is just, like, asking her all these questions about her background and is like, well, but this seems kind of unreasonable, don't you think? And the prosecuting witness, can, or the prosecuting attorney, rather, can just, like, harangue her. I mean, it was madness. I was just like, I know the American system is bad, but, like, we do have rules. And this just seemed like anarchy. So, obviously, I think you are meant to think, like, this is kind of nuts. But also just about, like the futility of having a trial about this at all, right? But equally, what is the solution to this problem? Like, there isn't really one. And ultimately, about the question of, like, how can we ever really know what is motivating other people, especially in a case where someone does something that seems really monstrous? And... I think part of what I love so much about the movie is that it doesn't answer that question. And part of that, I think, is because there isn't really an answer. Like, some things that humans do are just really hard to understand. But part of that also, I think, in the context of this movie specifically, is that it's giving this woman the dignity of not attempting to, like, explicate all of her thoughts and motivations the only time we see her talking is in the witness stand. There's no, like, private scenes with her because that would, in a way, be a violation. We, we do see the sort of more private life and thoughts of the frame character, but she's it, that's pretty limited. But yeah, I just was really, really blown away by the film. I had some very minor quibbles with some of it, but overall I thought it was incredible. And a lot of my freelance work earlier this year was to do with women in prison and especially women in prison who've committed murder. And so this really just like hit me in the context of having done all of that work and reading. I think I was less emotionally upset by it because I had done all that work than some other people, which isn't to say that I wasn't moved by it, but I was kind of like, oh yeah, (laughs) like another one of these stories but yeah I just thought it was so intellectually rigorous and so humane and I think it's on the French list for their Oscar submission so I really hope it gets nominated for one because I think it deserves to be seen by a lot of people. I mean it sounds very innovative for the courtroom drama genre because I kind of associate that genre with the mid-20th century and since then it's been like subsumed by law shows yeah, because I can't really remember the last time I saw a modern film that is literally a courtroom drama. Yeah, I think you're right in the sense that it just structurally and visually is totally different from any other movie or television show I've seen that falls within that genre. And I think I've probably seen a couple movies. There was definitely one from, I want to say Jordan that got nominated for an Oscar within the last five or seven years that I remember seeing and not liking that much. But it almost feels like this was made without any previous knowledge of that genre, though surely that's not the case because it would be impossible (laughs) to live in the world and be a person who consumes culture and not know about those shows and movies. But clearly that's not what's animating 
yeah. the filmmakers here, right? Like, they don't care about that. They're interested in doing something else. And the last thing I would say also is that, like, I was really impressed by the degree to which it was extremely culturally specific about the fact that this woman was born in Senegal and raised in Senegal and has family still there. And that that's part of, obviously, just like her life and part of how people have reacted to her both before and after the crime. But that's not really the point of the movie. Like the movie is making, asking bigger questions and has bigger concerns, but isn't dismissing those things either. And that all felt very intentional to me. And I think Alice Diop has talked about that in interviews that she wanted to have a sense of kind of universality to these people. I just thought the, again, like thought and care given to everyone in the film was really incredible. And all the actors were great, even if they have pretty small roles. The attorneys just felt so like, correct as attorneys, right? And you're not seeing any of them that's not them performing their jobs, but they just felt right. Just some middle-aged French people. Yep, correct. So yeah, amazing, amazing movie. I think it'll be coming out here later this year. And I think it will get awards attention, which will make it easier to see. God knows when it'll come out in the UK. I mean... Who's to say? Who can say? I am waiting many a film. Um, so next up, I've got two more films to discuss in this episode, one of which is The Wonder, which is a period drama directed by Sebastian Lelio, who is a Chilean filmmaker who has made many films, but he's kind of best known for a movie called A Fantastic Woman, which won the Best Foreign Language Oscar in 2018. And it's a movie about a transgender woman whose lover has just died and she's like trying to get back his stuff. Um, I can't remember the exact concept, but I do remember it being one of the most stressful movies I've ever seen, which was so emotionally obliterating. I can't actually tell you whether it was thematically transphobic or not. I mean, the whole movie is about her suffering. I don't remember it being offensive particularly. I thought it was fine. Yeah, I was very stressed through that whole film. But anyway, this movie is, uh, I would characterize The Wonder as a conventional and pretty good historical drama with a very silly framing device. <laughs> you will be able to watch this on Netflix, by the way. So it's a very accessible film. It stars the incredible Florence Pugh, who is amazing in everything, as proven by Don't Worry Darling this year. It's based on a real phenomenon known as the fasting girls. This is something that happened kind of from like the 16th to the 19th centuries in Europe. Young girls would claim that they were able to survive without food, usually as some kind of religious miracle. And it's kind of a subset of throughout history, there's loads of examples of young girls in the puberty range who claim to have some kind of supernatural ability or end up involved in like a hysteria outbreak, like in one of our favourite movies, The Fits, but also, you know, the Fox sisters who claimed that they could speak to the dead and people who experience poltergeists or have strange wounds, which are obviously self-harm, but are interpreted in a supernatural context. So this movie stars Florence Pugh as an English nurse who is hired to observe an 11-year-old girl who is played by the actress Keela Lord Cassidy. And she is the daughter of a rural farming family in Ireland. She has supposedly not eaten anything in four months. And Florence Pugh's character is hired by a panel of local men of the community. So like the parish priest and the doctor who are played by Kieran Hines and Toby Jones and also some other people who are more religiously zealous. Toby Jones's daughter character is like, maybe she's found a new way to absorb nutrition from magnetism or something, which is very funny. It like unfolds with a lot of themes that you'd kind of expect from this. So obviously Florence Pugh is more skeptical of this, but she's in a community of people who are extremely religious and 
very invested in this girl actually having these supernatural powers in some cases partly because like it brings positive attention to the village but in other cases obviously because like you want your daughter to be a saint or whatever but there are more complex and dark psychological underpinnings for what she's doing as you would expect and it becomes this very kind of interesting conflict between Florence Pugh's character and the other people around her because she's torn between basically wanting to disprove what this girl is doing, but also she has a duty of care to her. So if she finds a way to prevent however it is that this girl must be getting food from somewhere, then that means this girl may starve to death, which is like a very weird moral quandary to be in. And also at the same time, you have all these doubts about who might be seeking her food or what actually is happening because there's all these other people in her life. There's also a role for Tom Burke, great English actor <laughs> who is playing a like newspaper reporter who's here to cover the story and he's like very cynical about it and it's just like this girl's a scammer <laughs> so it's like quite a small role but obviously great because it's Tom Burke honestly I'd recommend this film it's not that great but like it's pretty good and Florence Pugh is amazing and everything but um the framing device <laughs> I genuinely think that Sebastian Lelio felt embarrassed about just doing like a normal historical drama and was like I have to make this artistic somehow so the, the film opens with a shot of a film studio, like a studio with like the set built in it and a voiceover being like, everything you're about to see in this movie is a story from the perspective of people who <laughs> lived in a different era. And I'm like, yeah, that's the purpose of historical dramas. Like, <laughs> it was so bad. I was just like, as a fan of Black Sails, a show whose entire central theme is this topic, I am embarrassed for you. Because <laughs> the, the voiceover is very corny. And what's more, it doesn't, actually tie into the film at all because there are many historical dramas that kind of play around with the concept of historical memory and record or are intentionally kind of digging into the perspectives of people from that period so the witch is like a really obvious example where everything is meant to embed you in the mindset of being a 17th century puritan or whatever but in this film i'm like it's it's a good drama but there's no ambiguity to what's happening. You're not like, you're not watching it being like, it's hard to tell whether she's magic or not. You know, the, the film makes that very clear. It has a clear and satisfying conventional conclusion. And there's no real kind of treatment of the idea of it being a historical record. So the whole framing device is, it was just reminding me of the new Nathan What's-His-Name show where they are like building stuff in a big studio back lot. And I was like, that show did it better. The rehearsal. It's like the, the rehearsal, rehearsal did it better. So um, that thing is silly. And you know me, I love a pretentious gimmick. So I, I would have been on board if it had any relevance to the film, but it is not. <laughs> I mean, the French Lieutenant's Woman did like a real version of this in the early 80s. Yeah, I've not seen it, but yeah. <laughs> Basically, it's based on a historical novel that has sort of experimental literary stylings. I've, I haven't read it, but obviously that would translate to the screen. And so Harold Pinter, who wrote the screenplay, was like, what if we just had half the movie where it's the actors who are making the movie having like the same drama as the people in the past? And you like see them acting out stuff and then like Jeremy Irons and Meryl Streep are also like having an affair in the present. It's very clever, but... This is based on a historical novel. Yeah. Or like a historical fiction novel that is just like a novel set. Yeah, it's a novel past. it's a novel written by Emma Donoghue, who also co-wrote the screenplay with Alice Birch, who co-wrote Lady Macbeth also with Florence Pugh. There's a lot of strong visual Lady Macbeth vibes here because it's Florence Pugh basically wearing the same outfits while walking stressfully across moors. Obviously, I enjoyed that. She's fantastic and looks great. And the cinematography is really good. Um, it's Ari Begner, who you interviewed oh. last year. Um, who She's shot so Lady good. Macbeth yeah. and The Power of the Dog. So, I mean, it looks gorgeous. But um, yeah, I mean, 
watch and enjoy, but probably don't expect it to be the best moment of the year. <laughs> I mean, I think Sebastian Lelio is a really interesting figure in the sense that I think he's quite good, but he's just not great. <laughs> but that's fine. And I feel like most people like that aren't allowed to exist anymore. Because he also did disobedience. The He loves religion. He sure does. The um, famous slash infamous uh, Rachel Vice spitting into Rachel Yeah, that's McAdams the only movie. That's mouth. the only thing I know about that movie is someone spits in someone's mouth. <laughs> yeah, it's about like Orthodox Jews in London. Rachel Vice has left the community. She's bisexual, I think. She's queer in any case. And then she comes back. I think her dad has died, whatever. And she and Rachel McAdams have this sort of relationship from the past. I think that movie's very good. I would definitely recommend it. It's sort of like B+. But I feel like, you know what? <laughs> I'll watch a B-plus movie. I think that's a perfectly pleasant way to spend my time. I mean, crucially, he's classy B-plus. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm looking forward to the wonder, genuinely. Like, Florence Pugh in a historical drama? Sounds She's great. She's great. Tom Burke's in it. All palatable to me. But I feel like he's not someone I would ever expect to make, like, a masterpiece. And that's that's okay. I'm sure he would be horrified if he heard these comments, but he's never going to. I mean, he's got an Oscar. You know what? Look, he's fine. All right. So tell us about your final movie. My final film is the new movie Decision to Leave by the iconic Korean filmmaker Park Chan-wook, who is known for numerous hit movies, including Thirst, The Handmaiden, The Vengeance Trilogy, and Old Boy, and Stoker. So Decision to Leave is... An intriguing combo of the sort of psychosexual drama he has in a lot of films and a straightforward procedural crime thriller. I enjoyed this a lot. I have no idea whether you personally will enjoy it as much as I did. It's definitely kind of got a somewhat mixed to positive reception. It's also got quite an unusual structure, although I don't really want to spoil that as much. The main concept is the protagonist is a detective who is married and he investigates the murder of an older man where the prime suspect is the older man's sexy wife. And there is an immediate frisson of desire between these two individuals who are both fantastic. The lead actors are Tang Wei as the woman who is a Chinese immigrant in Korea. And then Park Hale is the main detective guy. And then there's a supporting cast of kind of other detectives and relevant figures in their lives. But it's just such a fun and pleasurable movie to watch because it's extremely grown up. I was kind of interested to see Park Chan-wook described it as like his first truly adult film in a sort of slightly ironic way because almost all of his movies are like extremely adult rated and full of sex and violence. The Handmaiden is like, I was watching it like at the age of 30 being like, I'm too young for this. (laughs) Um, One of my favorite movies, by the way. But this is, it really is like about middle-aged people. And although it's very kind of sensual, it's not got a bunch of sex scenes in it and it's not got a bunch of intense violence in it it's all about the psychological dynamic and these very strange relationships that spring up between the main characters and also it's kind of a midlife crisis movie but in a really atypical and fun way the first section of this film is basically just him stalking this woman like he's surveilling her but she's like kind of into it It's like no no one in a Park Chan Wook movie has ever behaved normally. Everyone is like behaving so and anyone who does behave normally is a comedic side character who is not really that relevant. You know, he's married to this woman who seems perfectly normal, but you're like, well, I'm not really invested in this marriage because she's way too normal. (laughs) She's just this like scientist who's like, Oh, I think you should take more supplements for your stress. And he's like, No, I'd rather be an insomniac and stalk this sexy woman I just met. Um 
it's definitely not one of his best, but I really think it's one of my faves of the year. Like after a few days, I was like, yeah, it really fucking is good. And crucially, it is absolutely gorgeous to look at. It is just fantastic color palette and also loads of really unusual and memorable shots. The initial death slash murder scene, it's like a climbing accident where the husband character who dies falls off this very unusual rock formation that's this sort of weird standalone thing. So in order to investigate the crime scene, there has to be a crime scene at the bottom and then also the detectives have to like climb up this bizarre rock face. So it looks really cool and weird and unique already. And then you also have all of these lingering indoor scenes with this kind of luminous jewel-toned lighting and this woman wearing all these like gorgeous outfits. Not too classy, but like very kind of reflective of the light. And the editing is really interesting because there's a lot of scenes where it's either editing things that are like not strictly in chronological order into into different scenes, like intercutting them, or there are scenes where he's kind of imagining he's in the room with her when he's watching her from across the street and that sort of thing. It just uses a lot of like really fun techniques and weird characterizations to make what could be an extremely conventional crime story into something super juicy. I'm really looking forward to this one. Park Chan-wook has never been a particular favorite of mine. I think I've said this on the podcast before, but in any case, I think it's really just a matter of taste. Like, I think he's yeah. incredibly talented. I just, there's something about his movies that don't really do it for me. But I'm always interested to watch them, even if he's not my favorite filmmaker. But I think the idea that this one's a little more, like, for grown-ups, <laughs> in quotes, I'm like, I feel like that might do it for me a little more. Yeah. Also, like, I love a mystery. Yeah, it's a fun grown-up mystery. It's following a long and fine tradition of Korean crime dramas about, like, weird detectives, of which I have watched many. Um, I've noticed that, like, quite a few of them seem to use tango music as, like, a theme, and I was like, interesting, is this, like, a thing, or have I just been watching a particular subset that all <laughs> like tango music? Obviously, the music's always amazing in Park Chan-wook movies. But yeah, it's, like, too... 40-year-olds with really fucked up motives getting embroiled in a very unwise relationship while a crime is being investigated. (laughs) I mean, sounds great. I will happily watch. So yeah, that's our sort of mini-dispatch from the film festivals. There's so much still for us to see this year at the beginning of next year. On a Patreon episode, we talked about some of the stuff we were looking forward to it's easier to know what to look forward to now because everything pretty much has been seen. The movie that we are both just like salivating at the mouth to watch is, of course, Tar, which I have not watched because I don't currently leave my apartment and Gavia has not seen because it's not out in the UK yet. We will at some point watch and discuss Tar. Yeah, I mean, it's not out here until January, which is causing me a great deal of agony, but I am hoping that I will be able to get a screener just for award season and be like, please let me talk about this on my little podcast. <laughs> I'm I'm going nuts. At some point, I'm just going to take a cab directly to the cinema and be like, deposit me in front of Tar. <laughs> like, I just need to see it. I'm also dying to see the Banshees of Inisherin. I just like to see my close personal friend Colin Farrell. Yeah, I'm going to see that at some well. point in the next week, I think. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear your report. And there's a bunch of other stuff too. So I don't know what my, like, prognosis is for seeing stuff upcoming. But... I will at least be able to get some screeners, I think, near the end of the year. So hopefully we can cover some stuff in December and then do some form of a top 10. Top 10. Um, mine might be very heavily like, here's some foreign films I saw early in 2022. But you know what? 
they were good. So that's fine. But yeah, thanks to everyone for listening and for your patience during our long break. Um, our schedule in the next month or so may be a little bit sporadic too, depending on everything. Hard to say. But our next episode will be on Andor. I am a few episodes behind because I've been trying not to look at screens, but I love what I've seen so far, and Gav has been covering this God thoroughly. knows I've been covering <laughs> writing multiple think pieces about every episode of my favorite new TV show. <laughs> so good. I mean, honestly, guys, if you have any interest in Star Wars or political thrillers, this show is a fucking banger, unlike all the other Star Wars shows, which are not good. I mean... I am so checked out of like all of Disney's output at this point, And I started watching because you told me it was good. And I was like, oh, this is actually good <laughs> it's, television. It's got like cinematography and production design and themes and everything. <laughs> yeah. Tony Gilroy just really knows. He just knows what he's doing. Diego Luna is so good. So we will have a lot to talk about when we discuss that show in the meantime you can read Gav's 1000 articles about it on the day we're done <laughs> but yeah if you would like to support our patreon where we have some book recommendations up in a bonus episode and we'll have some kind of other bonus episode up soon you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvested podcast and gabia where can our listeners find you and your work? I know I just said, but, <laughs> yeah, you, you know, you, you can, can definitely your- find all my Star Wars coverage at the Daily Dot along with uh, some reviews. Yeah, um, you can find me on Letterboxd at Hello Taylor and you can find me on Twitter at Hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies, though I haven't been watching many movies recently. <laughs> Hopefully I will be again soon. And yeah, just thanks again to everyone. We really appreciate your guys' support through all this and hopefully the podcast will be uh, coming out more regularly very soon. You can follow the podcast on social media on Twitter at overinvestedpod, on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. See you soon. Bye.